Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, February 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The pharma lobby has marshaled all of its power to fight Medicare's ability to negotiate the prices of certain drugs. How's that coming along? Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors joins us to explain the drug industry's struggle to make headway and how it factors into the 2024 election. We'll also discuss the latest news in life sciences, including a twist in the future of alnylam pharmaceuticals, competition to Vertex's pain drug, and Gilead Sciences' latest acquisition. All that afterward from our sponsor. Hey, Read Out Loud listeners, Bob Herman here, Stats Business of Healthcare reporter and the writer behind the newsletter, Healthcare Inc. Healthcare Inc. is a weekly newsletter devoted to unpacking the business and secret inner workings of the U.S. healthcare industry. If you're someone who has ever received a medical bill or craves in-depth policy explainers or loves a playful meme now and again, I highly recommend you check this newsletter out. Learn more at the link in this episode's description. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks. So, Allison, tell us about your uh, tea troubles this morning. Oh, my God. I know. I, I was just thinking I sound I must sound very perky in the intro, which is uh, not how I feel. Um, so as listeners may know, I'm based here in the in the heart of biotech, Boston, um, which, you know, is at the forefront of medicine, genetic editing, healthcare, but not know, healthcare mass finance, not transit, not transit. <laughs> no. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm going to disappear in the later part of this episode because I was uh, stuck on the subway on the T. Um, and, uh, you know, send your thoughts and prayers for my future uh, commutes into our office. J- just Please. another day in Boston commuting, you know, when just three of the four lines shut down. There you go. Yeah. So Damien and I handled the Damien and I handled the Rachel uh, the Rachel segment today. Um, but Damien, um, let's start uh, Chatty Cathy today uh, talking about uh, alnylam pharmaceuticals and some big changes that have, they have made to a very important clinical trial. That's right. There is a massively influential study that alnylam is running, one that will probably swing billions of dollars in their valuation and determine the company's future. And that is on a medicine for ATTR cardiomyopathy, a disease we've discussed at some length uh, on this podcast. It's a cardiovascular, degenerative cardiovascular disease um, that is increasingly prevalent and has become an object of fascination in the drug industry by virtue of its prevalence and by virtue of how many medicines there are uh, in the pipeline to treat it. Now, the alnylam study, this is a phase three um, confirmatory trial, one that would go for FDA approval if it were successful. The data were expected early this year, and there was a lot of anticipation into this, a lot of picking apart of its odds of success. What we learned this morning is that the data will not come early this year. They will come more toward the middle of the year. But perhaps more importantly, that's because alnylam has changed its statistical analysis plan and changed the primary endpoint of the study. And, you know, we can get into the weeds of this and I'm happy to, but I think the headline there is, and, and Alnylam's stock price is down double digits this morning after this announcement, the headline is whenever a company this late in the process is changing its statistical analysis plan and primary endpoint, it doesn't exactly give off confidence to those of us on the outside looking in wondering how this study is going to play out. Yeah, this is this is the kind of thing that uh, uh, investors hate, you know, and we can, you know, I don't know, we probably don't need to get into deep into the weeds about the changes that they're making. But it seems like 
and, and you know they had a call this morning and we're recording this and probably we're not listening to what they're saying on their on their conference call but you know it sounds like they might have looked at blinded data from this study and have now kind of tried to make some changes both like like you said Damien in 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 sort of the the way the endpoints are designed but also in the stats plan and looking and basically extending this the study to sort of get to collect more events another 3 months of data collection and all that does not it doesn't confidence in study, I think, or in the outcome of study, you know, probably erodes because this, and, and you're certainly seeing that uh, in the in the drop in the stock price this morning. Yeah. I mean, we are saying all this with the asterisk that we don't actually have the data yet. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, if this is good or if this is bad, but it makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just keep on thinking, like, have we ever seen a biotech company do something like this, like tweak their endpoints after the study has already been run and have it worked out for the best. I think there probably are some instances where, you know, again, companies remain blinded to these data, right? So they're not they're not able to sort of look deep into the data and see the differences in the in the arms, like the the drug arm or the control arm, and they they may be looking at blind stuff. They're, they're probably are, I, I can I, I'm trying to remember the company and I it's escapes me now I remember there was a there was one company that made a change to an endpoint like in, the, in like this and it, and it actually worked out okay but I think to your point Allison you don't know and and particularly here where sort of the fine details of this study are going to be so important and, and Damien as you noted there's competition um, in this disease uh, you know uh, we should note that bridge bio which is another company we've talked about on the show which is developing a drug for attrcm um, their stock is up this morning you know on this news right because what may be bad for alnylam could be good for bridge bio and it's interesting because attrcm is has been a moving target for for science, frankly, but for the drug industry as it follows along with these discoveries. It was once thought to be a rare disease. It is now understood to be much more common. There is one FDA-approved medicine marketed by Pfizer, an oral treatment um, that has been on the market for a few years. And the thing is, Bridge Bio ran into its own moving target issues, I would say, a couple years ago when the first phase, or rather the first part of its phase three study, widely expected to be a success, was in fact a failure. And one of the things we kind of learned picking apart from that is that the data they were using to compare it to, the old Pfizer data, was done when the standard of care for this disease, which is a moving target, was quite different. And it's possible that alnylam is kind of just feeling a reverberation of that same moving targetism that is this disease. And in, as you mentioned, looking at the blinded data, not seeing as much of a disparity in cardiovascular events as perhaps one would hope in a placebo-controlled study, um, they made this change. Now, it, it's possible that when the data come, it will be positive that the drug works both on its own and on top of the Pfizer medicine, which are two of the, the populations in the study. And this whole thing will be lost to history and Onilem's future will be that of great success. Also possible it doesn't go that way. But it is interesting to kind of watch this gold rush play out where so many companies are developing medicines for this disease because as each of them iteratively mounts a phase three study, they are kind of studying a different population because of the changes that have happened so quickly. So this week we saw uh, the unveiling of a new startup company, biotech company that is kind of going after one of the big boys, uh, Vertex, and their pain drug that we've talked about on this podcast previously. Allison, tell us about this new company. 
Of course. So this week we saw the launch of Latigo Biotherapeutics, um, a company that's based out in California, was incubated by a VC firm out there called Westlake Village Biopartners. And their lead drug, their plan is to develop a uh, non-opioid painkiller, pain medicine that goes after the same target that Vertex's pain medicine goes after. It's the the sodium channel called NAV 1.8. It's been a very interesting situation to digest because so far they really are in kind of direct head-to-head comparison with Vertex. They're going after this same uh, channel that's used uh, to kind of interfere with the the signaling of of pain in a person's body, and um, they, like Vertex, are kind of primarily going after acute pain first, which has been another larger conversation. But they are really setting themselves up for head to head competition in this space. Yeah, Allison, when you talk to them, what did they say about? You know their their approach or their compounds that they're working on versus what what Vertex has, and you know, I guess I guess they have the advantage of being able to sort of look at now look at all the Vertex data. Yeah, they do have the advantage, and and looking at the data, they said it's good news. It helps you know kind of validate what they're working on. I mean, with the caveat that they actually need to do the clinical trials themselves, <laughs> and they actually are in the process. They're already in phase one, which. Is amazing to see. We're in this era of biotech startups right now where so many of the startups that I'm talking to are either in clinical trials or like have a very specific plan for, you know, filing it for an IND within, say, 12 months. It's what a concept. What a concept. Well, it's a, it's a noted shift in the market and that's from not, the last couple a of good, years. A good shift, I would say. A good shift. I think a good ship too. They're they're planning on launching a phase two trial later this year in acute pain. Um, they're kind of thinking one. Their pitch is that well, first off, you know, if you look at like the history of something like a statin, statins 1.0 were kind of okay. It was really kind of like the second and third generation uh, that succeeded, and there are you know the kind of the atmosphere around Latigo is that they'll be able to kind of watch Vertex and and learn from from Vertex's, you know, successes and failures in pain. Um, they're also hoping that their drug could even work faster than Vertex's drug. It's interesting to see this because in many ways, Vertex's success, and we've noted on this podcast that success is debatable, but at the very least scientific success in developing a sodium ion channel blocker is itself the latest part of an iterative process. There were similar compounds from Amgen, Genentech, uh, a company Biogenbot, whose name I forgot. Anyway, none of those became actual drugs. There was a time when this seemed like kind of a graveyard for drug development, despite the um, you know consensus that the target itself made sense, and then Vertex, by virtue of basically winning a chemistry bake-off, got to the point with the uh, the candidate that they have, and so it follows logic that there would, in statin-like terms, be a competitor on the horizon. Although it's notable that Vertex, unlike many of the last generation of biotech and pharma companies, is not really like a rest on its laurels firm. They already have a backup molecule that they're pushing forward in clinical trials that would conceivably unseat the one that we've all been talking about for so long. This is what they did in cystic fibrosis, um, is just iterating on their own stuff and creating products that would ostensibly 
cannibalize the revenue of their earlier stage products, but really widen the moat between them and any potential competitors. And that's worked very well for them in CF, and it's clearly the playbook in pain. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out now that they have a clearly defined competitor uh, emerging going after the same path. Exactly. And they already, I mean, as we've discussed on this podcast, you know, Vertex's, uh, the phase three data that came out last month was not exactly like a runaway hit with analysts and outsiders. There was a lot of room for interpretation, particularly with how Vertex's pain medication compared to opioids. Um, and, you know, the kind of their, the studies inability to show a clear advantage above opioids. Um, and this debate that's been going on of do you go after acute pain first or do you go after chronic pain first? Um, they're kind of two different markets. And from looking at Latigo this this week, I got the sense that they're two different markets. And there's also like a little bit of a biological, you know, chemical conversation about how this NAV approach um, that both Latigo and Vertex are taking, you know, if if it's operating the same, honestly, in acute and chronic pain. So we will be watching with bated breath to see how, you know, these two companies succeed or, or fail here. So we on this podcast and in biotech in general spend a lot of time picking apart the decision making of one Gilead Sciences and sometimes it feels like they're painted as like a gang that can't shoot straight. But it's worth noting that they have a wildly successful business in virology, they have a lot of money and thus they're able to do deals. So the future is very much still theirs to write and so this week we saw Gilead do a deal. Um, Adam, what did they buy and what does it maybe portend for their strategy moving forward? Yeah, Gilead bought a small drug maker called Simabay Therapeutics. It was, a, again, modest-sized deal, $4.3 billion. Uh, Simabay is developing a drug called Celadelpar. It is for the treatment of primary biliary cholangitis. I am not going to say that again. I, I actually practiced that before <laughs> the podcast this morning. Uh, we're going to call it PBC. Uh, and that's a it's a liver disease. It mainly affects uh, women. It causes decreased liver function. Um, and maybe sort of the hallmark characteristics of, of the disease is a really debilitating itch uh, that people get. And, and as the disease progresses um, to a more advanced age, um, you do sort of have an increased risk of uh, liver related death. Um, so this drug is already uh, under review at the FDA. So sort of the, the clinical risk is kind of off the table. And in fact, the drug um, the drug actually does looks like it works really well. There is a drug on the market for this, for PBC already. Uh, it was developed by Intercept Pharmaceuticals. I think Intercept was then sold off by this drug called Okaliva. Um, and what got people excited about the Simon Bay drug is that it looks a lot, it looks a lot more potent and a lot more effective, particularly on that itch that is kind of the really sort of the debilitating symptom that these people with PBC have. So you know, Gilead is a company that um, knows the liver disease area very well. Obviously, they developed uh, one of the first companies to develop a Hep C treatment. So this sort of fits into their wheelhouse. You know, we we talked in a previous episode here about um, their cancer business and sort of, you know, I talked about, you know, how within cancer, you know, they're really good at cell therapies, but not really good elsewhere. And they should sort of focus on cell therapies. You know, here, obviously they did a deal in liver disease, which again is another area of strength for, for Gilead. So I think this one kind of makes, makes sense. Adam, I'm curious, 
Sima Bay kind of fits the criteria of a company that would be acquired by a big pharma right now with a drug that's, you know, already in front of the FDA. That's exactly what many pharma companies are looking for. They kind of need phase two, phase three assets to fill this forthcoming uh, patent cliff that they're facing. Why do you think that Sima Bay was acquired by Gilead. You kind of mentioned Gilead already has an interest in liver diseases. Are there any other like things to glean from this deal? Um, you know, we'll see how much uh, competition there was for the acquisition, right? We'll, we'll once the SEC filings are are made public, maybe we'll get a sense of like if there were multiple bidders for this. We don't really know that right yet. Um, you know, I mean, look, Gilead. You know, we talk a lot about big pharma M and A, but you know, Gilead is a big company unto itself, um, and these are the kind of deals um, that kind of tuck in deals for a company like Gilead that makes sense. Um, they have, as Damien alluded to before, you know, they've been criticized for doing deals that are either sort of don't pay off or have not done all that well. Um, you know, the acquisition of uh, a cancer company called 47, which they did, um, seems like it's entirely blown up because now all the drugs that they acquired into that deal are, are no longer. Um, so this one seems like one that will work out. I mean, obviously, it always depends on how big uh, of a drug this can be once it gets approved. But I think, you know, from a from a standpoint of like the risk, like this drug does not get approved, I think that there's that is relatively low. I mean, the other related issue here is, you know, this is a, a liver disease that I want to I don't want to say it's like lower on the radar screen, but because I think a lot of people did think that Simon Bay was going to be acquired is the kind of company that looks like it would be a, a good target for a larger company. But, you know, we sort of have the whole MASH fatty liver disease um, area out there. Companies like Madrigal, which is about a month away from getting their drug approved uh, for MASH, and that would be the first drug for MASH. And so, you know, people, you know, would Gilead have been a good uh, company to to acquire Madrigal? You know, maybe, and there could be other companies as well. So, you know, I think there'll be some interesting things to look at in kind of liver disease uh, in the next few months. Yeah, that's a good point. Why has no one acquired Madrigal? <laughs> because of the damn Glip ones. <laughs> <laughs> Note I said Glip ones because that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I am hearing more and more Glip ones. Because they're um, I, right. I might be converting. The 2022 passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which included a provision that would allow Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices, was arguably the biggest failing for the pharmaceutical industry in Washington in about a generation. And it set off shockwaves around the industry. Biopharma executives bemoaned that it would strip companies of their property and that setting different negotiation grace periods for biologic medicines versus small molecule drugs would stifle innovation. Nearly two years later, the feds and healthcare groups are still fighting about the IRA in the courts and in public opinion. Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors joins the podcast to update us on a new court decision this week and how the drug negotiation process is going. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So starting with the, the legal angle, in the months after the passage of the IRA, multiple pharma companies and industry groups filed lawsuits contesting the constitutionality of the law for various reasons. What have their arguments in court been, and how are those lawsuits faring so far? So, you know, each lawsuit is a little bit different, but generally there are a couple of trends here. 
you know, they argue that um, the law constitutes, you know, a taking of their property, that um, the taxes for not participating in the process constitute excessive fines under the Constitution, that their due process rights are violated kind of by how the law is set up. Um, And there are some companies that are making some procedural arguments as well beyond just the big picture constitutional arguments. So the the lawsuits are pretty similar across the board, similar enough, in fact, that a judge um, in New Jersey is proposing to hear four of these drug maker cases all in one massive oral argument uh, that could potentially happen next month. Now, Richie, you, you wrote a story this week about, um, the, uh, I guess the judge tossed out the pharma lawsuit, right? Uh, but it seemed like he's, he tossed it out for procedural reasons, or um, and it wasn't over maybe the substance of the lawsuit. Yes, that's definitely correct. So the lo- this lawsuit in particular was a little bit of a stretch um, because it tried to fit into this larger strategy by the pharmaceutical industry to try to file lawsuits in as many different jurisdictions as possible to try to get conflicting arguments um, or decisions from different judges at the district level, to try to get conflicting decisions on appeal, try to get the attention of the Supreme Court. That's the ultimate goal here. And so Pharma was trying to finagle their way into jurisdiction in Texas. Um, So they had added um, the National Infusion Center Association to the lawsuit um, but the judge ultimately decided in this case that their claims didn't um, qualify for judicial review. They hadn't followed the right process. So um, that uh, plaintiff was kicked off the case. And once that plaintiff was kicked off the case, they decided it couldn't be heard in Texas anymore because pharma is not headquartered in Texas. So um, it was dismissed without prejudice, though. This this lawsuit could come up again, you know, um, but it was it was an early loss, but not on any of the substance of the is- the constitutional issues that we're talking about here. So outside of the courtroom drama that this portends, Back when the IRA was first passed, the aforementioned disparity between small molecule medicines and biologics, small molecules would get nine years before being subject to potential negotiation, whereas biologics get 13 years. That was something that people in the industry and uh, in some cases in Washington kind of homed in on as a facet of the law that perhaps pharma and the industry at large could find a way to motivate a legislative change to, to normalize those, to make it 13 years for both types of medicines. How is that coming along? Lo and behold, the industry um, just last week found a Democrat to sign on to legislation um, that would change this disparity, as you're talking about, and equalize the amount of time before negotiation for both biologics and small molecule drugs. And almost immediately... um, the patient advocacy kind of group um, that's funded in part by Arnold Ventures, Patients for Affordable Drugs Now, started running uh, television ads in its district, actually featuring my reporting um, on Not only your uh, reporting, but we we get a little cartoon version of your face. (laughs) Yes, my cartoon face is in televisions across (laughs) North Carolina. Congratulations. Uh, Is that like a bucket list for a political (laughs) reporter in D.C. to have to be part of one of these ads? You know, it's never a goal, but when it happens, it's, it's just kind of funny, you know, at least somebody's reading it. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a competitive district um, in North Carolina. It is a big biotech, um, like 
uh, district, obviously. And um, it is unique because he was not in Congress when the Inflation Reduction Act passed. So he didn't actually vote for it at the time. So I think Pharma kind of found their perfect candidate here to carry water. Um, But I think this ad buy was clearly a warning to other Democrats who might be thinking about signing on um, that it could be a liability for them in election year. Um, I don't think anybody really expects this to pass this year, but I think there is hope in 2025, especially if like control of Congress or the White House changes, that something like this like tweak could gain some momentum. So this has all been kind of a referendum on pharma PHRMA, the uh, formerly perhaps quite feared and and venerated lobbying group that represents the pharmaceutical industry in Washington. You had a story, Rachel, about a year ago looking at the passage of the IRA as a referendum on pharma's seemingly waning power. And it seems like the group has had a difficult time of things since the IRA was passed. Um, arguably, it's lost its edge. I don't know where does it where does it stand now, and how does the the fight in the aftermath of the passage of the IRA what does it tell us about pharma's standing in Washington? I think you know pharma has continued to struggle, um, especially in regards to the Inflation Reduction Act um, in Congress. But that's not entirely surprising because um, it's kind of the same group of people, especially on the Senate side, as uh, passed this law. It's the same president that signed it. And there's just no incentive for them to make any changes uh, ahead of an election. So I think pharma as a whole really has viewed this Congress as kind of a lost cause in terms of making any substantive changes to the law. But I think they very are much are banking on 2025 as a more favorable environment for them. The Senate, you know, is... A, a tough map for Democrats, and there's a very real possibility that it changes hands. And, you know, if there's a new majority leader, or there's a new agenda, I think they're just kind of holding out hope for some sort of Republican leadership that might be more sympathetic to their concerns. So we've also recently seen uh, former CEOs uh, invited up to uh, the Hill to to give testimony. Uh, most recently, I guess, uh, Senate, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, had a hearing about drug pricing. Uh, Rachel, you wrote about this. Is this just sort of more political theater or is there substance here? I think it is more political theater. And I think Senator Bernie Sanders kind of admitted as much <laughs> that, you know, he doesn't have the votes to do a whole lot legislatively. The ranking member kind of decried that this wasn't a legislative hearing. Um, but part of the advantage of being the chair of a Senate committee is you have the bully pulpit. And I, he got a whole lot of drama out of trying threatening subpoenas of these CEOs, of, you know, getting the photo op of them, you know, in the room. I don't think we learned a whole lot that was new um, about why these medicines are priced the way they are or, you know, why the system in the U.S. works differently than it does abroad. But I think it was just a, an opportunity that Senator Sanders saw uh, because he's always kind of worked on the fringe of the Democratic Party of, you know, establishment politics as a whole. And, you know, generating that publicity and that public pressure is uh, a tactic, even if there's no immediate legislative goals. So speaking of political theater, and we addressed the the contested North Carolina race um, in which you are you are on the airwaves. But I wonder, you know, the IRA is, I think, really the signature legislative victory of the Biden administration and kind of by extension, his party um, in both houses of, of Congress who are 
struggling to hold on to what they have and perhaps regain some ground. So with that in mind and knowing that, you know, lowering the cost of medicines is politically popular, pharmaceutical companies politically unpopular, that's generally been true, but seems especially true in recent years. How much do you think this broader issue might factor into races across the country this year, including the race for the White House? I think the Biden administration is fighting an uphill battle just to make sure people know this program exists, because especially the Medicare negotiation program has not gone into effect yet. You know, people aren't feeling those new prices and they won't until 2026, which is a pretty long runway. There are certain provisions that have gone into place, like um, copay caps for insulin for Medicare patients. Um, and there are some uh, cost protections for Medicare patients taking really expensive drugs that did start to go into effect this year. Um, but I, it is an uphill fight just to, for the administration to try to communicate what they've done legislatively and uh, help people understand what they've done. And they have, you know, tried to you know, make hay, have press releases about every incremental development in the Medicare negotiation process, really just trying to gin up uh, momentum and coverage um, that this is happening. And my my colleague, John Wilk- Wilkerson, actually had a really interesting story about how these lawsuits by pharmaceutical companies could actually produce more publicity for the Biden administration um, and just telling people that this uh, these policy changes are have happened at all. Um, so I think it's not going to be the number one issue on voters' minds, but I think the Biden administration really is trying to message that drug pricing was a part of this vaguely named Inflation Reduction Act, and that in the future, it could really have um, a pocketbook impact for especially Medicare patients. Rachel, it's always great chatting with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not Allison should just give up taking the tea to work. <laughs> you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Hopefully I make it into the office in better time. <laughs> <laughs>